Everybody don't be acting right. It ain't Indonesia. China wide. People here got big eight to lie. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Offen. Wow, the the long I know I point out your delays, but that was a that was an extended one, Joe. You know, there also is like technical stalls that like I probably gave it half a beat and then I did it, but you know, because of the lawnmower man uh like virtual world we're moving through, like there's glitches and hiccups, so Okay. Blame the hiccups. There's glitches in the matrix. There's hiccups in the virtual reality. See here, I thought you were just setting the mood and, and making artistic choices as a podcaster, but no, it's just, just technical technical problems. Yep. Yep. So, yep. so, you know, before we get into any more technical problems, uh, you know, it's been a little bit since we've been on mic. I believe the last episode we, we talked together was the hereditary episode, so that's been like at least a month, but bringing up that movie is a good reason to uh, just get into sort of some elements of summer box office and specifically the movies that we tend to look at, talk about on this uh, podcast um, and how well some of them are doing, or just specifically smaller movies are actually having a, a pretty good um, it's all relative, but a pretty good summer at the box office. Hereditary is was a wide release by A24, but it is uh, close to becoming their highest grossing movie ever. I think it might pass Lady Bird soon or get close to it. And I think that's an uh, awesome victory. Like that's a movie that I can really point to that I liked a lot and did well. And was, even though it had one of, you know, we talked about it, how it had a bad cinema score, you know, when it was released, it still has had legs and played in theaters. And I think that's really promising. Um, but the ones, the the sort of, there's, I guess, three movies in particular that for the last couple weeks, but even longer for a few of them, have been at my theater. I work here in in Portland, uh, Cinema 21. We've been showing the RBG documentary, the, the Mr. Rogers mm-hmm. documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and the Deborah Granick film, Leave No Trace, um, which has, you know, was shot in Oregon and specifically in parts of Portland. So there's a direct kind of local connection that gets people interested at our theater for that movie. But that movie is doing well as it's going wider every week, uh, as it's doing its slow rollout. And I think Bleecker Street, the distributor, has been handling it really carefully and nurturing that movie in the way that a small, quiet drama needs to be nurtured. Um, And they're finding an audience with it. And Add to that, like, I'm telling you, Won't You Be My Neighbor and RBG, they keep filling up our small screens down at at Cinema 21. And we're, like, consistently selling those shows out for these movies. Like, RBG, we opened in May, you know? So, like, this is a movie that has legs. And people are interested in it for probably a lot of obvious reasons. Um, I even just noticed in my email this morning that there is a Ruth Bader Ginsburg biopic uh, coming out in December. So the market's going to be flooded with RBG stuff. Uh, Felicity Jones is going to play her. I haven't even watched the trailer. I don't know if it's going to be any good, but it almost seems redundant because, hey, documentary about her put out by Magnolia, a very small distributor. It's their highest grossing movie of all time. It passed I Am Not Your Negro like a long time ago, and it's made um, north of 12 million, I think, overall, which is actually a really astounding number for a movie that small and um, yeah. 
yeah, won't you be my neighbors doing even better? And for us, Leave No Trace, even as it goes to other theaters in town, has just been like a big, big monster hit for us. So uh, we're opening the new Gus Van Sant movie, which is about a Portland. uh, uh, It's a biopic about John Callahan, a Portland cartoonist. So there's going to be a local interest in that when we open it this weekend. Um, Mm -hmm. and that might be the rest of our summer, to be honest, of just riding out all four of those movies. Uh, I don't know how big that one's going to be elsewhere. It seems like it'll just be kind of mild movie, but I just kind of wanted to say, Hey, some of these little movies, even ones that we haven't made time for on the podcast to, to get into are really doing well. And, um, you know, the Mr. Rogers documentary, especially is a movie that I don't think it's a a mind-blowingly awesome documentary, but holy shit that I feel good seeing that in a theater. Um, and it felt good to feel good coming out of the theater and to have gone through something. And these movies are being rewarded with like legit good box office. Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to open on that because the movie we will focus on uh, here soon enough and in the main uh, thrust of this episode is a movie that opened wider and it's called sorry to bother you, but it had a strong weekend. And um, maybe before we completely swing into that, like, I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts on the summer box office show? Have you been going to see any of these movies? Is there anything you're impressed with that that's doing well out there? No, <laughs> just kidding. Um, I, uh, <laughs> Good night. One Thanks. Of <laughs> one of my coworkers the other day I had brought up, uh, a documentary which I haven't seen yet, but I had asked if anyone else had seen it or were planning on seeing it. It's the Whitney Houston documentary, Whitney. Mm-hmm. And uh, my coworker said, They still play documentaries in the theater? And so <laughs> it's interesting that, like, there are a lot of, you know, like types of movies that are that are now it's a foregone conclusion that they're relegated to streaming services and like documentaries aren't really at a loss for you know showing up on netflix which has become you know a a a great source of like you know documentary material but like i think as demoralized as like people are you know feeling lately to be in a room with like other people where they can connect with something, you know, like the Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary or the Mr. Rogers documentary, you know, where it's like a a sort of like bygone era that, um, where there, there, there was like an approachability to the world and like a, a sense of coherence to the world, even as it was sort of like baffling and confusing and overwhelming. There was a, there was, there was an approach and there was a heart and like accessing that, like there's something sad about those documentaries because it feels like a moratorium on an era that's no longer accessible and like a sort of intimacy that's no longer accessible. And like, I found myself crying like throughout uh, the Mr. Rogers documentary, won't, won't you be my neighbor? Like just consistently. And like, mm-hmm. to the point of like during the closing credits, my friend Karina, who I went to see it with was just like, can we just sit and collect her? I'm not ready to go out in the world yet. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's just, uh, let's like let the puffiness kind of like subside and then we can gather ourselves and head out. And like, we weren't alone. There was like 10 other people in the theater who were not ready to reenter the world yet. 
And then as soon as the lights came up, the staff must have been used to this at that point. And they just <laughs> went and were like, all right, guys, get out. I know. Yes, you're sad. Please move out. of the- like, There's another show that needs to get sat soon. Please get out of here. I'm like, oh, really? It's already. So it's like valuable for people to gather together to connect with these things, even like as they become types of movies that people are considering just like, yeah, why would I go see that in the theater? Like to be around other people who want to have a shared experience, who are tired of feeling alienated and isolated into their bubbles, you know? And like, so to connect with a presence like Mr. Rogers, like who's so, who like is so far gone that it's fucking, it's going to make me cry now thinking about it, you know, in terms of like the world where he was possible, you know, like, <laughs> and just, uh, yeah, fuck that movie was devastating, but, um, yeah, yeah. but like, you know, the, the types of movies that we're going to talk about today are like, you know, two of which are, you know, they're primarily comedies and comedies have, you know, they benefit from, you know, if you're in a crowded theater of enthusiastic people when a a movie hits and connects in a comedic way there's a kinetic energy that gets like unleashed and there there's a contagious energy that happens and like people like it it comes to life and elevates things in a way that like you know is not quite as possible when you're just sitting at home pausing it intermittently to go get more tortilla chips you know and so like the two movies we're going to be discussing, most of which is going to be Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You. And then we're, we'll probably close up with Legacy of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter, the new movie by Jody Hill starring Josh Brolin and Danny McBride. But like they're two dip, totally different types of comedies, but like comedy has become a sort of endangered species in terms of like being a successful draw at the box office, like the more kind of spectacle oriented cinema becomes in terms of like event movies, people don't really justify like, "Eh, I could, I could watch that wherever, you know, wherever, whatever your streaming service of choice is. We discussed this off mic, how like (laughs) you've like, you make your choice. You've got your four options that you subscribe to. And beyond that you're on your own. But like, uh, most people will just look at comedies and be like, yeah, I don't need to, I don't need to go see that in the theater, you know? And like, so they've made their choice. So for something to still draw people to the theater, it has to have a sort of italicized importance to it, a sense of urgency. And like, sorry to bother you is that it's a, it's a like vibrant, it's a fucking excited, agitated like volatile piece of filmmaking um that has been several years in the making uh boots riley you know has been an activist and a musician for a long time and he had this germinating kicking around since 2012 where he had it like ready to go wanted to shoot it decided like that was too difficult so wanted to just give away the screenplay online. So like people could see that these ideas were there and then it got published. And then that publishing, it got like re reinterested, like, you know, potential people. And he got into the Sundance labs. The movie got rolling. Finally in 2018, it's coming out and like people are ready. 
Like it's it was interesting because it's a it's a movie like you know it's not big budget. Like he he's mentioned that all of his actors were paid scale. It was shot on location in Oakland. It's like it's an intimate movie in terms of like the scale, but it has big ideas, big energy, and feels like enormously of the moment. So it's just like to say it's a small movie doesn't really do justice to the enormity of its energy. And uh, so it's, it's interesting because it was just like a ways out zoomed back from like when it was still months from coming out, there was like rumblings that it was like, Oh, this is going to be a hit. And I was just like, is it, Are you, it seems pretty niche, you know, like, I don't like, I don't know who I was talking to. I was talking to myself at that time, but like, <laughs> Just wondering, like, Annapurna's putting it out. They're they're capable, but they take gambles on, you know, what could be just small niche movies. And so I just was, I was hoping for it to be a hit, but I just wasn't sure. And then, like, the closer it got, you know, especially in L.A. with it being screened at, like, universities and, like, the big screening I got to go to at the theater at the Ace Hotel, like, it was just like, oh, no, this is a hit. It is, like, legitimately a hit. And it like is alive and crackling and just like it was it was nuts. How did it play for you in that screening? And like because that was a massive was theater, a right? Massive theater, right? Yeah, it's like a giant like palace of a theater. Um, well, going into it, you know, I like the line wrapped well around the block, and I was like, oh god, this is insane. And then like out front. They had sign twirlers for the movie. <laughs> so I was like, whoa, shit, this is really exciting. It you know, wasn't they had Tessa, like, was it? <laughs> no, but it was people who were very good at what they did. And so it was like, <laughs> it was a per- performative elements. And they're like twirling the signs and doing like gymnastics. And, and so there's just like a sense of like, even outside of the theater before getting into the movie, there was a sense of just like kinetic energy to everything. And so it, it played incredibly well. I mean, this is, these were people who were already pre excited about the movie. You're not getting a, a, a theater packed with 600 skeptics, you know, they were all <laughs> excited about it. So it, it played well to the audience, but I think that like, you know, it, like it's, it's a movie of like constant absurd non sequiturs. Like you could potentially lose even a big audience who's there for it. You know, it certainly happens at film festivals. We're like, we're excited about this. What the fuck? You know, like they'll, they'll turn on anything, <laughs> I think. Um, but like, yeah, it played incredibly well to the point of like certain scenes warranting full applause breaks. Oh, um, nice. So how like you saw it after it had, or on opening day in Portland, um, what was, what was your experience like? It was, it was more muted and uh, probably <laughs> less interesting to be honest, but I, I found it fascinating because I went to first matinee on Friday. So there were, I think evening shows the night before that's pretty typical now, you know, a couple like uh, Thursday night previews, but I basically saw it opening day in Portland and I, I would say 20-ish people in there. So one of the smaller theaters. Um, oh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So not a huge turnout. Not that I was expecting it on a Friday. But um, it was one of those screenings where I felt like me and maybe four other people intermittently would 
would just cackle because of something absurd or absurdly funny would happen. The sort of probably similar overlap to the moment you're referring to that drew applause, but because it was such a smaller Mm -hmm. audience and also I got the sense, you know, I, I think you and I do this thing where we're trying to read how a crowd is, is vibing with a movie where I just got the sense that some, there were a few like quite older folks in, in this screening. And I, I got the sense that they were, I guess, understandably, they were confused by this movie is how it read. Like I would get a few, like some of the absurdest shit would happen. And I just hear a, you know, or like a what, you know, like an occasional, uh, you know, trying to understand what's happening in this movie. But that, what it, what that kind of added to it for me, uh, just on a personal level, I was, I kind of love that unease in the theater sometimes. And, um, the movie also has, it's a shaggy, shaggy fucking movie. Part of what I, I really appreciate, but have to admittedly knock on it as a, just in terms of like it's filmmaking is Mm -hmm. there's a, there's a lot of the the movie is just under two hours, but it's definitely like too long, you know, on a sort of base level. There's moments where my brain could just sort of wander, but then I almost feel like boots. Riley was aware of that. And I, I wouldn't want to take anything out because the shagginess is part of its appeal to me in the end, because the movie continues to up the ante like every 20 minutes and really where it ends up in the last, the, like the final section of the movie, I could have never predicted based on the marketing in advance, which really focuses specifically on the, like the telemarketing angle of the movie and the, uh, the use of, Lakeith Stanfield using his white guy voice with Danny Glover. That is a minor, minor blip of this movie. And I loved that to be surprised by it. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting early movie experience for me. But I, I personally enjoyed that experience and mostly enjoyed the movie for sure. Yeah, it's like that as the sort of like hook and entry. Look at the pitch to the movie is that, you know, Lakeith Stanfield plays Cassius Green, this guy who lives in his uncle's garage with his uh, performance artist girlfriend, and he's unsure of what he's doing with his life, like what his purpose on Earth is. He's having this kind of existential crisis, but he needs to just have a job. So he gets a job as a telemarketer. And so the hook is that once he really starts to thrive and succeed, once he adopts like his job interview voice, which is a white is literally a white guy's voice. He's <laughs> overdubbed by um, David Cross. Is he David Cross or is yeah? Okay, so Danny Glover's voice is Patton Oswalt, or is it vice versa? No, no, you're getting right. these white people. Up. Okay, so we all sound the same. You so <laughs> like exactly. Um, so like that's that's the hook into but the movie is so dense with satirical commentary on like modern life that's like it's barely heightened at this point you know like a, a big focal point and a big element of the satire is like these live workspaces that are essentially accepted prisons that people are living in <laughs> called uh, worry free where um, like that's just like that's that's so close to being a plausible reality that it's just, it's barely satire, but the movie is like smart enough. And like, I mean, it was written six years ago. So it's just like what once was a satirical kind of dystopian view then becomes like documentary reality essentially. But like the movie is just so dense with these, like these commentaries. And like, I thought that it was, it's, it's sense of like, 
alienating absurdity to older audiences, which God bless the older audiences because they keep going to the movie theaters because it's what it's they true. know, you it's know. True. And so they they show up to what they saw a New York Times article about. And they're like, I heard this was it. I don't understand this movie, but they're still going. <laughs> yes, which God bless them. Um, <laughs> because as Easy E says in Straight Outta Compton. Um, they bought them motherfuckers. So they, they paid for the ticket. So regardless of whatever problem they have with the movie, they still paid for the ticket to see the movie. So the movie's getting the money. So, um, (laughs) so like this, this is just like the movie becomes an engine of absurdity and non sequiturs and not without a, you know, a decent amount of heart to it. Like it's an incredible, like testament to, people trying to find meaning in an an incredibly meaningless world and a meaningless system. And like Lakeith Stanfield is the perfect entry point because he's just so like wide eyed and interesting and vulnerable and open to like, you know, the audience. You're just like, you, you want to see him like get through it and you want to see him like thrive because he's just such a, like, he's just such an open, like, presence and so like he's like he's the perfect entry point to this struggle in this story um but yeah the movie is ultimately long you know and it's like for what ultimately becomes like a series as great as the ensemble is a lot of the characters just end up being ideas more than they are fleshed out people and per like actual characters and so to sustain a narrative to the almost two hour point when you're basically just dealing with a series of ideas it does start to like tire itself out and uh for a movie like this to really like maximize its punch i think there needs to be something succinct about it Mm. so i think that you, you that you described like the kind of like cycle of it like upping the ante every 20 minutes like it needs to keep doing that in order to assure that there's a punch and the end of the movie does end with like a pretty decent punch. Cause like the last 30 or so minutes takes this like spiraling absurd plunge where you're just like, what the fuck? Okay. I'm in. And, um, it's interesting. Cause like there's, there's like movies that this reminded me of. Yes. Like, you know, to me, I, I haven't really seen this mentioned much, but like it reminded me of Repo Man a little bit mm-hmm. in the sense that it was like Repo Man dealt with a lot of like <clears throat> surreal commentary on where the world was. It deals with a protagonist unsure of where their place in the world is. So they take on a sort of weird, meaningless job. And then that acts as an entry point into just further absurdity with weirdo people and like just like the monologues and the digressions in repo man Mm. kind of mirror. Sorry to bother you in a weird way. And, uh, there's, there's like a deadpan detachment that like is similar in their senses of humor. And so like that movie, a movie like idiocracy, which I think like the comparison has been made a lot in terms of it's like target of satire, Mm -hmm. but like those movies were kind of sleeper hits like idiocracy like less so like that movie took a while like it didn't it bombed initially from what i understand they didn't give it much of a release yeah it was one of those circumstances for for that movie yeah but that movie's become so tragically prescient like the <laughs> further we get into time in this world mm-hmm. but uh like that just it just felt like you know 
like the movie movies like that fought for their place in in the collective consciousness and like you're you're almost surprised that they exist and so like you're so a movie like repo man may like i know you have problems with the movie mm. um which not to put you on the spot i hope i didn't just rat you out to it's people, true but, uh, i don't mind yes <laughs> <laughs> but like you you can kind of the fact that it, it sort of snuck into the world in this weird way and it like it it initially bombed and then it got brought back because of the popularity of its soundtrack and it, it got its like second life on video cassette and so it found its audience eventually and you can kind of like cherry pick what is incredible and notable about the movie while not holding it to the scrutiny of a traditional narrative because mm. a little this weird shit in it. Whereas like a movie like Sorry to Bother You is like, it's a hit kind of out the gate. Not a huge hit, but it's like considering it's per screen average, like it's a fucking hit. And like, it's what people are craving something that's saying anything. And this movie's saying a lot. And it does have its own kind of like, like you said, shaggy, I think is a, you know, really great description of it. Because it does, it is brimming with ideas. A lot of those ideas don't land in a narratively satisfying, perfectly packaged way. But maybe that's good because maybe that sticks with you. It sticks to your like insides for longer because it's like it's unresolved. It's not tidy and to be put away and forgotten the way so many commercial entertainment is, you know, like so. So it needs to be sort of like brimming with ideas and sloppy at times and just like imperfect because you you wouldn't want to trim any of the because the movie's so dense and loaded. You wouldn't want to trim any of it because like we're so desperate for anything saying anything at this point, Mm. you know? Yeah, no, exactly. Because that makes me think of like modern mainstream comedies, right? This isn't this is doing well enough to be considered that, I guess. But this isn't mm-hmm. totally that. It's just sort of emerged into the mainstream, which is very exciting. I think that's what you're getting at in some ways and what is exciting about this movie doing well. But I, I, I went back to like previous movies, either you and I have talked on the podcast that fall into the mainstream comedy <clears> thing. And there's not a lot because I think a lot of the time, admittedly, you're more of uh, you will go to these movies, I think more than me. I just have this weird uh, like Game Night is a movie you've kind of really enjoyed from this year you and other uh colleagues uh that that have said i should see and i i need to see the good ones like that because where my mind always goes is like uh this is like the watch or we talked about the dictator the sasha baron cohen movie off mic those are not representative of all mainstream comedies that get wide releases but in my mind they just feel like it's like i saw I saw like five too many of those movies at a stretch where I was like, why am I going to the theater to see this shit? And they're so, they're so, um, they're the opposite of sorry to bother you. They are so, uh, lacking ideas and even like energy, those ones that, yeah, sorry just feels like, yeah, give me the like overstuffed suitcase mold of this movie then. And that's what it is. And I can't, I did sort of after and have after the fact even appreciated that like, this feels like Boots Riley being like, this might be the only movie I get to make and I'm going to put in as much mm-hmm. as I can, as many ideas as I can. And it's a, it's a stylishly made movie. It has a real, like, like it's energetic. It, the, I love the weird sound design and the music, which I believe Boots contributed to. And there's another element that did, that did the score, but um, 
Yeah. Yards. Yeah. Yes. She's like an experimental artist. I don't know if she's from the Bay Area, like with him, but uh, yeah, she's she's great. Yeah, it's like a great sort of interplay that that stuff in the movie. And there's these like kind of really like stylish, like montage sequences that I appreciated. Um, I think the thing that really deserves the shout out and you were alluding to it is like the cast really does a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. And Lakeith Stanfield is just a star. He's amazing. He's so great. Um, Tessa Thompson playing his girlfriend named Detroit in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just everybody else that pops up and the use of David Cross and Patton Oswalt uh, as their voices, like all of it like helps this movie sing in a way that uh, I think no matter all the strong ideas and, and, you know, style in the movie, it wouldn't work if it wasn't for just like these really great actors making it like they believe it when they say the words in this movie that that's really like no small feat. This is a bizarre fucking movie and one that continues to get more bizarre as it goes. Uh, Like repo man, it just enters like, science fiction or fantasy land at a certain point in the end where the world that we've been watching is very clearly not our exact world. It's just that it's that satirical sort of skewed, but the movie sort of turns the dial up more as it goes. And it like slowly uh, builds and builds and becomes weirder and stranger. But I also kind of love that as absurd as this movie is, it's not really that far off from our reality. And it just sort of helps it. It, <laughs> it yeah. helps it go down easier. Whereas um, uh, an odd comparison is like a movie like the death of Stalin, which we, we talked about on the podcast earlier this year. I certainly, mm-hmm. we both enjoyed it. Um, that movie I really like, but it's like such a more nihilistic movie than sorry, but sorry also just has like a silliness to it that that movie didn't necessarily have. It, it's almost like it makes all the harsh critique, the harsh sort of mirroring of our reality a little easier to go down. And I don't know, like I appreciate both those movies for what they do, but the fact that sorry is like, I think what worked for me the most and helped me overlook stuff that, that doesn't work as well. The shagginess is like how almost like, like a Simpson, like the best of the Simpsons. It has a real, it has ideas on its mind, but it's, it's silly. It's willing to be silly and just go out there. Um, and yeah. I, I, that goes a long way for me sometimes with comedy, with, with comedies like this. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I appreciate that stuff. I can't believe that this is a mainstream, like wide ish release in theaters, but I do hope that like, these are the kind of comedies that can actually continue to do well and stuff like the watch or the dictator, uh, or, um, honestly, even the legacy of a white tailed deer hunter is a good comparison only in so much as that's where those movies belong to me is on Netflix. Like that's a, like I want Netflix to make great movies that I just unabashedly love. That hasn't happened that much, but you know, for every Oakja mm-hmm. or the Meyerowitz stories is like tr- great movies that they've made that might not have gotten any, that might've never been made otherwise. were not for Netflix. I, I think the thing that makes like legacy of a white tailed deer hunter work for its, for being on Netflix is that it is inconsequential and it doesn't really seem like it was the, the effort compared for it to be made just seems so much smaller to something like, sorry to bother you, which just felt like nurtured and worked hard and like took time. They are, I guess I kind of came away appreciating that each of those movies are in its right place. And isn't it great that sorry to bother you is the one that 
demands the cinematic experience for many reasons, for its style, but also for that weird vibe of being in a crowd while you're watching this weird movie. Uh, deer, the, yeah. the legacy of a white deer hunter, it doesn't need to be in a theater. And I'm glad it didn't even get put in theaters. Like it's fine on Netflix. You know, <laughs> that's about all I can really say, you know, on, on that one. Yeah. Cause it's getting to a point, uh, you know, we've, we've churned through so much content that like, you know, you, 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 f- you hear people and they're talking about like their, their need to sort of whittle down and narrow down the amount of content they take in so like yeah it's a good movie but so what like you hear that kind of cynicism which is like a very like it's a very spoiled cynical like you know position to be in where there's just like there's so much to take in that even if something's good who gives a shit you know and so it's just like why why do i need to make the effort to go see something in the theater it's good yeah but so what like I don't make that argument, but I definitely hear that from people. And so for, you know, oftentimes you, you hear the argument made on behalf of like what we've are arguing is becoming an increasingly hollow experience of like, yeah, I want to go ride a roller coaster at the movie theater, which has become the sort of like spectacle movies and the, the event movies and which is, you know, primarily under the banner of Disney at this point. But like the other event is that, you know, there are the movies that like provide something that you are not getting anywhere else. And that is so, you know, like urgently kind of needed, whether that's the surprise of a horror movie turning itself inside out like hereditary or a movie like sorry to bother you, which is like really, you know, like, a Molotov cocktail bomb thrown like at, you know, everything going on right now. And like Boots Riley's like uh, his history as like a songwriter, like he's always been a storyteller. Like you go back and listen to the coup, like with whether it's like fat cats and bigger fish on genocide and juice or me and a pimp named Jesus off steal this album. Like he's a fucking storyteller through and through always has been. And like, and so I think his need to almost even just give the screenplay away when he was kind of uh, despondent and couldn't get a deal for the movie to get made is just proof that he has ideas that he urgently wants to communicate to the world. And that's like, as much as you wish that was true for everybody, it doesn't always feel that way. You know, it just feels like everybody wants to have a job and they want to secure their, you know, their place in the market. So, you know, like, with spectacle movies getting less and less concerned with like filmmakers and their individual visions. And, you know, like it just seems like ideas are less prescient and brands are more kind of urgently kind of attended to. Mm. So like, sorry to bother you flies in the face of all of that. And like with that, with the, with the sort of italicized importance of it being an event movie in a different sense, like there there's probably a certain level of scrutiny that comes with it that like, you know, if you put a magnifying glass over its shaggy elements, it it's it, does it hold up to the scrutiny? I think it does. You know, as as flawed as it may be, like I th- I think those flaws are part of, you know, what makes it as important, you know. It's interesting how those flaws can be the thing you might appreciate about a movie like this, whereas 
yeah. we we constantly point out just sort of almost arbitrary flaws we get from the typical Disney release, a Marvel movie or whatever, where this is just its own thing. This is a movie that the we've said this already, the flaws are what make it interesting at the same time. So like, I love that that can be in, in such sort of increasingly like uh monoculture like existence at the movie theaters that we're seeing a multiplex, you know, that to see something that stands out, that is such a weird element of uh, to see it on the list of 16 screens at the theater. I went and saw it. I was like, and then after the fact, thinking about that, like that, that's really good for movies that it is not just playing in those theaters, but that it did find an audience and hopefully will sustain through the summer. I feel like maybe it could really hold on for a while and do okay. Um, because I mm-hmm. feel like, I feel like the next Molotov cocktail movie that's going to come out is about a month from now when uh, Spike Lee's movie, black Klansman comes out, which by a lot of accounts when it premiered at the Cannes film festival is quite good. And I, Ooh. You know, so I don't, it's, uh, it's, I hope sorry can just continue. I hope it doesn't just drop off the face of the earth, but there aren't that many big, big movies left to come out. There's the, uh, the mission impossible movie coming out in a couple weeks, which actually looks Mm -hmm. kind of fun, even though I don't really care that much about that franchise. But beyond that, a a, a movie like sorry, I, I, I hope it can just continue to weird out audiences and be a draw for people to be like, I need to go to the theater to see that. And it does feel like one of those movies. It's not going to just be, there will certainly be plenty of people that will just wait for it to come out uh, streaming or on video or whatever. But I love the idea that this is a, something that the the cinematic experience is the best way to appreciate it. And it's a comedy, you know, at at a very base level, it's a comedy, it's a satire. um, And those don't have to be relegated to Netflix. The ones that are inconsequential and sort of feel tossed off, even though I enjoyed something like Legacy of the White-Tailed Deer Hunter. It was perfectly fine for a Saturday afternoon lazy watch. But sorry to bother you, like made me stand up at attention. I, you know, it might have, it might have made me, uh, at times, feel like, oh, where's this going? But like that was all a part of it. It was like making me lean into it, and um, I, I'm so glad to get to see it on a on a big screen. And in and also. You know, we talk about what makes a movie cinematic a lot on this podcast. This is like another element of it. It's stylish. It's a well-made movie. It looks good. It sounds good. But also that there's like other elements to what makes something cinematic. And it's like it works in a crowd in a weird way. Like it it does different mm-hmm. things to different people. That's something that makes a movie cinematic. And that that's Boots Riley. That's the cast and crew that made this movie work in that way. So those moments would would make you spring to life or be confused or laugh out loud, which, um, which, which this movie did make me laugh a lot. Sorry to bother you. So yeah. Uh, I feel like it's good for movies. Uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to be too hyperbolic. I don't want to speak too, sure. you, know, you know, I don't want to like doom this movie, but I, I, I really think it's good for movies and it seems to yeah. be doing well enough that like someone like boots might get to make more movies, which the, one thing's for damn sure that I'm certain of this movie is like, I want to see more from him uh, because yeah. he seems like he's got some shit to say <laughs> and an interesting way to say it. So yeah, um, he, yeah. he does for sure. And like the, a lot of the movies that, you know, kind of influenced him, like he seems to be, you know, and he has an interview last week with Mark Marin on WTF and he, Mark Maron brings up RoboCop and they live as like reference points, which you 
mentioned RoboCop. Yes. In terms of its like satirical elements, like via text, when we were talking about the episode, and like just imagine, you know, like he he's somebody who like has directed music videos and stuff like that, but stepping into a feature like and a feature as ambitious as this one, that does have a good amount of visual flair to it. And, uh, you know, just like with, with super inventive sequences, like, you know, when, uh, Cassius starts getting some success, you know, like yeah. his, uh, his apartment going from like a garage and then getting outfitted with like all new, you know, like, decorations and stuff like that like there's just like flair and like in like inventiveness to the visual look of the movie which seems to be something that like you know it might not come as easily to somebody who is primarily like a musician or a writer or something like that so he has like a flair for visual storytelling and he has influences that are kind of like big like robocop you know or like he said he loved they live you know, a John Carpenter movie. So imagine him getting a, you know, a sizable budget and then not being asked to compromise any of the vision that comes with a potential sizable budget. Like, I think that's pretty exciting. It's exciting too, because so much of like what's old is new again, right? That's just a cultural thing. But even if we look at like politics, right? From that era where Verhoeven and Carpenter specifically, you know, Paul Verhoeven, John Carpenter were really skewering the 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 very like heavily conservative right side that was basically dominated the politics in America in the 80s that now we have this Trump era and I'm really glad that sorry to bother you took this long to make it I think it still would have been effective if it came out during the Obama administration it's not like its ideas are strictly you know reacting to the Trump administration obviously not but because so much of what's old is new again feels like in politics and that we're in these stupid cycles that seem like we're making bigger and bigger mistakes as a country. Well, Mm. perfect time to have like, I guess like my hope is that if boots Riley gets to make more movies, hopefully he does get more budgets. You know, he's it's like uh, maybe, maybe him and like Jordan Peele become these become the new Paul Verhoeven and John Carpenter. You know what I mean? Like I, I would love to see that because these are directors that, didn't have a chance to make movies for a while. They had to put in their time. They got to do it and they should be rewarded for doing good work and actually making their distributors, their money back. And then some, you know, in the case of get out for sure. Um, And I just, I think that's really exciting because those directors had to get to a certain position in Hollywood where they could actually get away with that stuff. And maybe I thought of RoboCop while watching. Sorry, because I watched it recently. I just felt like revisiting it. Uh, I've been doing a nostalgia sort of movie rewatch and I, I watched uh, all three predator movies, which was enjoyable, even though the second and third ones are not that great. But then I was like, well, now I got to go on to RoboCop and I've only watched the first one since uh, starting this, but that movie is such a funny, potent satire. And I couldn't help but see overlap in the, in the specifically the media stuff within each world, uh, in RoboCop, mm-hmm. it's that it's that goofy old man that says, I'd buy that for a dollar. And everybody's always watching it in the world of RoboCop mm-hmm. and laughing at this guy. And mm-hmm. Sorry to Bother You has several elements of that. There's the worry-free stuff you were alluding to where they actually have like episodes of like cri- MTV Cribs where people are showing their like lofts that they share with a bunch of people. It's so funny and absurd. And then there's a show that everybody watches in Sorry to Bother You called I Got the Shit Kicked Out of Me, which... That I like how much more blunt 
it just sort of encapsulates the movie too. It's so much more blunt and over the top about like what it's doing, but is it really that far off? No, I mean, no. doesn't exactly. So uh, I loved that stuff and I really leaned into it where it's just that stuff. Uh, I know we've talked about it where randomly movies sort of speak to each other. And if you just happen to have experienced, like I just watched RoboCop and then saw sorry to bother you like a week later. I love that. There's no, there's no plan for that. It just sort of happens. And it's what makes, you know, dorks like you and me excited about movies because there's this constant conversation going on. And, and, uh, I love RoboCop so much that it's really pleasing to have just one element of a new comedy, like sorry to bother you that just sort of in a good way, gives me that RoboCop or more specifically that really like, um, how to describe Paul Verhoeven. He's such a shit starter. Like I like his, attitude in his movies of like he just likes to stir it up and he's got a mean like sense of humor that i appreciate i loved getting that hit in sorry to bother you but again it was only you know it was only one part of a very dense uh you know experience so um yeah i don't know i would i would love it to see these guys getting to do more uh with more you know with more resources that that would be also very good for movies, I'd li- I would think. And I guess unlike other, you know, the last few movies I want to compare it to is we were uh, via text. I was, I brought up uh, Southland Tales and High Rise um, mm-hmm. and how this, sorry to bother you, it feels in, in a piece of a piece with those movies too. They're all kind of shaggy and have a lot of like a lot going on in them. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But this one feels like the most successful uh, compared to those, for me anyway. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Just just that uh, something could be that out there and overstuffed with ideas. But for me, it actually mostly works. That's a different, that's, mm-hmm. that's exciting too. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, to, to have something not collapse under the weight of its sort of ambitious ideas is like nice for it to kind of like maintain a momentum and a trajectory and like land someplace as opposed to just like exploding in a pinata of not much, you know? Which... Sorry isn't smug like Southland Tales too. High Rise, I don't know if I'd describe it as a smug movie, but you remember when we revisited Southland Tales, it was like, the smug factor of that movie is just too much. It's so up its own ass and pleased with itself. It seems yeah, that it rubs you and me. It had rubbed us the wrong way when it's like, we're actually kind of like on the side of Richard Kelly. I, I would like to think, you know, uh, in terms of what mm-hmm. he's going after, but he loses me because it's like, ah, oh, you're so fucking up your own ass. But I never got that sense with sorry to bother you. Like boots boots doesn't feel precious about it. He just, had a story he needed to tell. And I feel like there's a real difference there in in the execution of the movies. Yeah. It's also nice to, you know, have Oakland, you know, on the cinematic map, you know, this last couple of years with uh, a black Panther, probably the best scene for me from a black Panther, you know, starting with the, the two short sound drop and then you got kicks and then we have a new one coming out blind spotting. Yes. Yes. You know, Boots is from Oakland, so like it seems like you know a, a place that he wants to continue like shining a light on, and so um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I like a lot of rappers from Oakland, so there you go. Let's give them more it's, movies. It's Let's let them make more movies. <laughs> you 
if yeah. they want to. If they want to. I, I'm just glad you brought up Kicks, man. That is such a small movie. We reviewed that last year or two years ago, but God, what a good little movie. Find that movie if you like if you like movies. I don't know. Find it. Um that's a good one to bring up. I hear blind spotting is quite good too. We might have to make room for that if we can. In a future episode. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're winding down. I've basically said all I have to say about <laughs> legacy of a white tailed deer hunter. Do you really want to get into it or what do you think? Should we just, uh, what do you think, man? Well, it's, it's interesting. Cause are we, or is this going to be edited out? Us no, talking about no, talking about it. No. <laughs> um, it's, it is interesting. Cause like, you know, like there, there was a, the filmmaker and Danny McBride, which Danny McBride isn't even the lead in legacy of a white tailed deer hunter, but like, you know, he's, he's a prominent part of the cast, but they, they kind of came up, you know, in the last 10 years as like these, uh, I don't know if like acerbic is the right word, but like it was, you know, it was during a, a sort of era where it was okay to, portray a level of like belligerence and hubris like with you know the the character in foot fist way and with eastbound and down which i know jody hill was like a contributor on he didn't direct every episode you know a lot of that was credited to david gordon green but like there was just like a, a level of satire in its own way of a kind of american belligerence arrogance and hubris that like it felt not safe, but like appropriate to do so in a certain era um, that now just feels like it almost is. It's like, it's not, it is now embraced without a level of satire or irony. And it is indulged in by truly kind of toxic figures that are running the country mm. that it feels less safe to do. So legacy of a white old white-tailed deer hunter does not go into any of those subjects at all that they're sort of known for Jody Hill and Danny McBride. It's more of a touching father son story that, you know, like does dabble in a little of like the American history of hunting and like gun culture and stuff like that, but never takes it as its own target. So it's like, it's, it's interesting for them to continue to find their voice in an era like out kind of out of step with what we're used to from them. Mm, Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, and so now it's just like they can, they've always been like, like surprisingly humanistic filmmakers. Like I think there's heart in every one of their projects. And I think Danny McBride is probably like, he's, he just seems like a giant teddy bear, even though he's sometimes portraying characters who are like repellently awful. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so it's it's interesting that they have to they don't have to. I mean, this was probably just something they they'd been thinking about for a long time, independent of whatever climate we're in right now. But like to need to find their heart as opposed to targeting like uh, a grotesque American hubris while grotesque American hubris is suffocating the country, you know? Yeah, it's it that is probably the the most interesting thing and something I mostly appreciated with with Legacy of a White Tailed White Tailed Deer Hunter is the You're a hard time with that title, don't you? No, man, it's just a mouthful for me. I'm struggling. I don't want to just say Deer Hunter, but that's my instinct is to shorten it, but then that becomes confusing for obvious reasons because there's a movie called The Deer Hunter, but uh that's neither here nor there. 40th anniversary this year. Oh shit. 
I'd revisit that movie if it made sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, the legacy of a white-tailed deer hunter uh, is <laughs> uh, that was so interesting. Is like the the truly mean-spirited, like the toxic uh, male character that Danny McBride played in Foot Fist Way, and Seth Rogen played in Observe and Report, Jody Hill's previous movies. It it did seem like well yeah when we had a president that actually seemed like or you know our leader seemed like a genuinely nice guy maybe like it was mm-hmm. like easier to like enjoy that on a comedic level even though we knew people like that existed and you know there's overlap there and what Sasha Baron Cohen was even doing at that time you know uh, with with like Ali G in the Borat movie and Bruno movie but now that our president <laughs> seems it is such a douchebag asshole like so upfront about his assholery that uh boorish belligerent and willfully ignorant that yeah yeah so like it's a nice to see them turn and be like well here's a like they're still dealing with the same themes of like uh you know uh uh like josh brolin's character is in many ways similar to uh danny mcbride or seth rogan from those previous movies but he is actually a, a trying to be a good person he's not he's not lost like those characters are like too far gone or too uh maybe psychologically just like broken he he wants to be a good dad and there's that sweetness that really actually made the movie feel different uh from jody hill Mm -hmm. but i did still see a lot of the thematic like similarities of like he still you know is like he he's very selfish narcissistic guy you know despite his love for his son he's not necessarily doing it for the right reasons there there is it's interesting to see them adapt that sort of those ideas that they're interested in into a different era. And again, that movie I think works just fine on Netflix. It's it, it did make me laugh, especially the hunting video segments, which I, um, uh, especially when I lived in Minnesota in college, there were a lot of guys I I hung out with that were hunters, never really Mm -hmm. wanted to do that shit myself, but they would have, they would watch that. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of like hunting videos that this movie totally uh, sends up just perfectly that I, I really enjoyed. I actually wish there was more of that in the movie. Um, there's like an opening montage in the beginning. Uh, that's really funny to me. And uh, you know, it doesn't have it a lot in the movie, but there, there are these elements that did, you know, it made me laugh enough that it was enjoyable enough to casually press play on Netflix. And, and that was just fine. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I think that movie's just fine, you know. Uh, it, it and that, I guess I guess I don't have much more to add than that. <laughs> well, that just sounds like such a damning endorsement. Like, it's just fine. Well, here's my point. That settles it. Just fine. Yeah. Maybe just fine for a, for this kind of movie is perfect for Netflix. That's what I'm getting at. You know what I mean? Like, if I would have just said just fine coming out of the movie theater and I spent ten bucks to go see it, then I think well that movie's why did I do that? I'd be more mad at myself, but on Netflix, like, Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is that's okay. I think you're getting depressed at what I'm describing of like the, there's like maybe a complacency of a moviegoer to just be like, it's fine on Netflix. But I guess what I'm saying is that's okay. It's in its right place. And even more miraculously, sorry to bother you is in its right place. It's in a cinema. Mm -hmm. And, um, I appreciate that. You know, that's all. Nice. (laughs) It is nice. What do you say, man? Do you have you want anything else you want to say uh, about the the Deer Hunter movie? Uh, no, I don't think so. All right, yeah, you know, give it a watch if you I feel like, it. yeah, if you feel like watching it. But we're we're really we're really vouching for Sorry to Bother You. That's the one to see, I think, right now for sure. OG 
just chill to the next episode. Let's wrap this one up. Episode uh, 178 of Adjust Your Tracking. Uh, you can uh, email us if you'd like to send us any nice comments, or maybe if you disagree with us, we, we'll listen to your disagreements, but uh, send us a note if you like at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. You can find these podcasts and our other episodes and um, of our other podcasts over at theplaylist.net. Just click on the podcast tab there. You'll see all the most recent stuff. Uh, I think that's that's probably everything I need to say. Joe, anything else you need to add in there before we go? Um, stay hydrated, everybody. Stay hydrated. That's good advice, man. You're you're in the scorching LA, but it's it's fairly fairly hot up here in Portland as well. So that's good advice. Yep. Rough here in the Southland. That's right. <laughs> nice, nicely done. Well, uh, with that, I'm going to thank you, Joe. Thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>